Uh, really glad to be up here this morning sharing with you, but uh, boy, it's been such a blessing to have a variety of different voices all summer long. Uh, that's a real treat, and I think uh, more to the point, it'll help keep us kind of primed for our next senior pastor. It's really easy to just get used to one voice, boring old me, but uh, it could be uh, helpful to have a variety of voices speaking into us. And uh, uh, keeps our hearts tender, not tight, so that's a good thing. And um, before I dive in, just want to remind you about our uh, meeting this evening, 5.30 this evening. Uh, the representatives from the CB Northwest will be here to talk about the mapping process. And uh, just in case you have no idea what's going on, uh, we're in transition, looking for our next senior pastor. And as we've been in that process, we've done a lot of uh, self-examination, this mapping process, and... Um, uh, kind of getting a lay of the land, finding out what things are going well, what things maybe could be better, and those sort of things. And so the results of that are going to be uh, revealed this evening. I wish I could share them with you now, but I don't have any idea. It'll be a surprise. So um, that's 530. I um, hope you can make it for that. We'll have child care, but no food. So eat and bring your kids, feed them, and uh, we'll be looking forward to that. Uh, many of you know this, I had another career before I became a pastor. I studied uh, theater, acting, those sorts of things, and uh, studied it quite a bit. And uh, there's a really interesting idea, I mean, interesting to me, hopefully it'll be interesting to you as well, but uh, uh, interesting idea, an ancient idea from the world of drama. And, uh, and it's interesting because it's all around us. We see it every day, and yet we don't necessarily pay attention to it. Maybe you will after you hear about it. But the idea even has an ancient-sounding name, okay? It's a Latin phrase. And the phrase, I don't know how to pronounce Latin, I'm giving it my best shot here, but the phrase is, uh, in medias res, it means in the middle of things, all right? And sometimes, you know, maybe you feel like you stepped right in the middle of things. That's not what this is about. This is uh, something different. Uh, in medias res, in the middle of things, has to do with how stories are told. And uh, generally, when you tell a story, you start at the beginning, right? You know, once upon a time, there was a little girl, and her grandmother gave her a red riding hood, right? And the story unfolds from there, right? Well, uh, uh, in medias res gives us a different way to tell stories or to understand stories. As you could probably guess, a story with in medias res starts in the middle of things. And I told you it's an ancient idea. One of the most famous examples of an in medias res story that we have in our culture is the Odyssey by Homer. All right, if you've ever read the Odyssey epic poem, you know it doesn't really start at the beginning. It starts in the middle of things. Uh, Trojan War is already over. Uh, Odysseus has already had all his experiences. And then in flashbacks, you go back and you find out all these different things that have happened. So it's an ancient idea, starting a story in the middle of things. But, uh, you know, i got to tell you, when I was in high school, we were supposed to read the Odyssey, but I didn't. I didn't even read a word of it. I bought the Cliff Notes, read those instead. So feels good to get that off my chest a little bit. Been holding on to that for a while. Uh, so maybe if you're like me, maybe you never read the Odyssey, maybe that doesn't uh, resonate with you. Let me give you a couple other examples. I mean, this is this, uh, an idea that shows up in, in uh, movies, TV, stories, all over. They use the same idea of in medias res. And uh, one example that I did pay attention to was Raging Bull. You know, it's not a recommendation. I'm just saying I watched it. But uh, uh, the movie starts off, right, with this overweight Robert De Niro uh, practicing a really bad comedy routine at, at a nightclub, right? And you're kind of wondering, what's with this guy? You know, he's not even funny. Uh, he's out of shape. When are they going to get to the part about the raging bull, right? Well, 
the story goes back and you learn how he ended up overweight, Jake LaMotta, washed up doing lounge acts, right? Uh, a couple other examples help you understand. Uh, maybe you remember the movie Forrest Gump with Tom Hanks. It starts in media stress, in the middle of things. The character's already an adult. And then we go back and we learn all these things that shaped him into the person he is. Uh, more recent example, 12 Years a Slave, if you saw that movie, or Unbroken. Uh, of course, the cinematic masterpiece, Captain America, the first Avenger. That's another good example. So you get the idea, right? Uh, a very common way to tell stories is in media stress, in the middle of things. And the story we're going to look at today is a really good example of that. It starts in media stress, right in the middle of things. But one thing that's not very obvious, but it's true for all of us, is this. We're all in media stress. We're all in the middle of things. Our whole lives are lived that way. We, we meet a person for the first time, and what do we do? We, we find out more about them, where they came from, their history, their background, all the things that got them to the point where they are now, right? Everything that happens to you and me really is in the middle. We all have history, things that God has done to shape our lives, to shape us who we are in the present, how we respond to what's going to happen in the future. Everybody has things that God is doing in their lives. Even if they don't acknowledge it, it doesn't make it not true. And sometimes it's obvious what God is doing, right? Things are so obvious, you can say, wow, God is really at work in my life. He's, he's preparing me for this, for that, you know. But most of the time, it's not that obvious. Most of the time, it's only when we look back that we can say, oh, I didn't understand it at the time, but now I realize that God was doing things to prepare me for, for what's happening right now. But in either case, God's at work, right? And so often when we pick up a person's story, we meet a person, uh, or even when we try to make sense of our own story, we find that we're in media stress. We're right in the middle of things. So I want us to dive into our passage today. It's a great story and uh, probably one of my favorites from the book of Acts. That's a little bit like... Uh, asking me to pick which one of my kids is my favorite. But, uh, but I love the story. I love so much about the book of Acts, and yet every time I read this story, I think I enjoy it more and more. It's a story that starts in medias res, right in the middle. The story is about two people that seemingly uh, meet each other by chance, and in the course of their meeting, they change the trajectory of the whole world. Changing the world as we know it, just with this seemingly chance meeting that they have. So we're going to explore the story, and as we do, we're going to see some things that God was doing already to set up this divine meeting. And as we jump into the story, we are given one piece of background information, one helpful little piece of information. Uh, and, uh, the story is in Acts chapter 8. And the chapter starts with one little piece of info that helps set the stage for this divine appointment we're going to explore. One verse. Look at uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So this period of persecution begins for the early church, and most folks are forced to flee Jerusalem. You know, just prior to this, we learn the story of, of one of the deacons that was chosen. Uh, uh, we learn about Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr, the first uh, person to be killed as a result of his faith in Jesus. And following that, there seems to be an increase in persecution. We don't know the details, but it was dangerous enough for, for folks to flee. The passage says, all except the apostles. That's a significant migration. And yet, 
God's not surprised by that. God's not taken by surprise over anything, right? He's in control. And God even uses this plan, this persecution, to grow the church. And in fact, despite the enemy's best efforts, uh, persecution almost always serves to grow the church. You might be familiar with a, a famous quote from Tertullian. Tertullian, he's an early church father, lived around 200 AD and uh, a little while after the book of Acts. And in his time, Christians continued to face significant persecution. They were fed to animals for sport in the Roman Colosseum, things like that. If you were here last week, you heard Paul Dean mention the same idea. And yet, Tertullian realized the same kind of thing that we see right here in Acts. He, he said it this way. He said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. In other words, he argues that when onlookers see Christians being killed, being persecuted, they're not repelled, they're actually drawn to become Christians themselves. Every martyr plants seeds in the hearts of others who had to come face to face with their own reality. Would I be willing to die for what I believe in? Or if I was tortured, would I stand firm in my own beliefs? Those kinds of questions draw people to the Christian faith. Uh, Another writer who lived at the same time said this, Do you not see that the Christians thrown to the wild beasts in hopes that they may recant the Lord do not allow themselves to be beaten? Do you not see that the more they're punished, the more the others increase in numbers? So onlookers saw that the courage of these Christians in the face of certain death, they saw that the peace with which they faced their own demise, and that example brought people to faith. Well, Jesus himself teaches the same principle. He taught his disciples the same idea, talking about his own death. He said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. God used the same principle right here in Acts 8. The death of Stephen serves to force all the disciples away from Jerusalem. And you'll remember that Jesus said right at the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And notice that's exactly what happens here. Look at Acts 8 again. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So God utilized this persecution to accomplish his purpose, sending the disciples out into Judea, into Samaria, They weren't exactly excited to go to Samaria. The Samaritans had a bad reputation. Nobody wanted to go make disciples over there. So perhaps that's one of the reasons God utilized such drastic measures to be able to get the gospel out to people who needed it. And the very next part of the book of Acts tells some stories of the gospel taking root in Samaria. You can read that in Acts 8. And then immediately following that, we see the gospel take root at the ends of the earth. That's the next phase. At the end of Acts 8, we see the gospel being planted as far away as Ethiopia. And I told you it's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts, and I say that because it shows the amazing impact that just one person can have. So let's take a look at the story. Acts 8, we're going to start in verse 26, so you can find it in your Bible if you haven't done that already. Just leave it open. We'll be looking at it throughout our time together this morning. So Acts 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. 
The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So there's two characters in this story, two people. Of course, if you count the Holy Spirit, there's three characters. But uh, we're going to start our focus with just one of these characters, this Ethiopian. And in this story, this Ethiopian, he comes to understand the truth of the gospel. He comes to embrace it. He becomes a believer. And then, of course, he's baptized. And remember, there's this idea that underlies this story, this idea of in medias res, in the middle of things. So we meet up with this Ethiopian right in the middle of things. That means God has been doing a lot of things in his life, behind the scenes, if you will. God's been preparing this person. And and one of the ways that God has prepared him is God has put him in a position of influence or a position of power. He's a guy who's got a high-ranking role in the Ethiopian government. He's a person of influence. The passage tells us he's an important official in charge of all the treasury. So if God has in mind to change the trajectory of a culture, and in fact the whole continent, then finding a person of influence seems like a pretty good plan. The first thing we learn about this person is that he's got some influence, he's got some power. Now let's just pause right here for a moment. Let's talk about this idea of influence. You know, sometimes God puts people in a position where they can influence others. Uh, Just last week I saw this article, Justin Bieber is engaged, apparently, didn't know that, and... uh, He was photographed reading a book about marriage, a book by Pastor Tim Keller, and I can only imagine sales of that book have increased since that photo, right? And Justin Bieber's got influence. In fact, there's a whole term now for for online people who have personas that influence others. They're called influencers, right? Imagine that. People who uh, promote a certain diet, certain clothing style, whatever, they're, they're influencers. It's a whole thing now, right? Uh, several years ago, I went to a, a meeting at a church, uh, and they had some missionaries there who were, who were sharing and raising some support. I don't know if you've ever been to these kinds of meetings where missionaries shares about the place that God's called them to serve and tries to raise money, you know. Well, this particular missionary was uh, called by God to serve the Lord by bringing Christianity to Hollywood. That was, that was his mission field. He'd made some significant relationships with, with filmmakers and was trying to share the gospel with a bunch of different people in Hollywood. And, and in the process, you know, not, not only hoping to lead filmmakers to Christ, but hoping to influence the kinds of movies that get made because those movies have influence on all of us. So, so this guy was a big thinker, really trying to change the culture from the inside, if you will. Pretty interesting strategy, targeting people of influence because they had influence on others, right? It's it's a little bit like this Ethiopian. He's a person of influence in his culture. 
And yet all of us are influencers in some way. I mean, one of the lessons we can learn from this story is just to take advantage of the places where we have influence. Maybe it's at work, maybe school, maybe it's just in your own circle of friends, maybe bigger than that, maybe your family. But we all have some measure of influence, and how can we use that to help spread the gospel? So one way this Ethiopian had been prepared by God before we meet him is that God placed him in a position of influence. Another thing God's been doing to prepare this Ethiopian is God brought him to Jerusalem. God brought him to, uh, to be exposed to God's people. Verse 27 tells us he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship and now he's on his way back home. So God clearly has a plan for this person. And now Philip, he doesn't yet know any of this stuff. We, we learn these details as we read the story. So, so here's this Ethiopian. He's been prepared by God. He's been given influence. And I have no idea how long that might have taken. I'm guessing he was kind of primed for it for his entire life. So, so years and years of preparation, it's all really leading up to this encounter with Philip. And the first step was a trip to Jerusalem. I don't know what made him want to go to Jerusalem. There was a significant Jewish population in Ethiopia at this time. He could have been in contact with some Jews there, found an interest in things related to that. Uh, Maybe he just came to see the temple, this magnificent structure that was famous all over the world at the time. And maybe it was his own sense of devotion to God, trying to make sense of some things there. But whatever it is, he takes his two weeks vacation and he heads up to Jerusalem. And so he's prepared because he's a person of influence. He's prepared because he's been at the temple. He's been surrounded by God's people. He's been exposed to God's word. He's been exposed to worship, all those kinds of things. And finally, he's prepared by God because he's curious, spiritually speaking. When Philip makes his way up to this Ethiopian's chariot, the man's reading the Bible for fun, right? Not a lot of us do that. We probably should, but you especially don't read the book of Isaiah the prophet for fun. Look at verse 28. On his way home, he's sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, this tells us one of two things. Either this guy's uh, smartphone died so he couldn't waste time on Facebook, or he's curious, spiritually curious. And uh, uh, it's interesting because he's got a copy of the scriptures. That would have been very rare at this time. And he's got the ability to read them on his own. That would also be very rare at this time. So God has clearly been preparing this man for what he wants to do, not just in his own life, but in changing a continent, changing the trajectory of the whole world, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, using this person of influence to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. And so there's so many things that God is doing in the world just to get to this point. The beginning of this story, it's not the beginning at all. Not for this Ethiopian. God had been working in his life for years and years. But there's another character in this story, right? Philip. We first met Philip back in Acts chapter 6. Even way back then when we met Philip, God was preparing him. The church had this, this very practical problem in Acts 6. They needed some leaders to deal with it. And so they prayed and they identified seven leaders, the first deacons. And the qualifications for these men is that they be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Right? So even when we first meet Philip, he's, uh, he's been prepared by God. You don't get to be full of the Spirit and wisdom overnight. That's, that's a lot of preparation. God's been at work in his life for a long time. He's earned a reputation for his, his spiritual maturity, so much so that he's appointed to this position of leadership. And so, so he's a guy who's been in process. God's been preparing him. And one way that he's been prepared is simply by his familiarity with the Scriptures. Look at verse 32. 
The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. See, Philip's familiar enough with the scriptures that he can start with the man right there from the place he's reading and he could share the gospel. He can help this Ethiopian understand the gospel because God's been preparing him. But perhaps the best way that Philip is prepared for what God wants to do is that he's responsive to God's leading. One of the things I love about this story is that God really doesn't give Philip a lot of information. He gives him a lot of directions, but not a lot of information. Look at the passage again. It starts off with this vision, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's all he gets. No follow-up information, no idea of what to look for when he gets to that road, just go. But he does it, he responds. A little bit later, he gets another direction, verse 29. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Again, that's all the info he gets. I'm just saying if it were me, I'd have some follow-up questions. That's all, you know, like, what exactly do you want me to be doing here, God? Is this, uh, uh, what am I supposed to be ready for? Is this going to be happy or dangerous? You know, I'd want to know some of those things. But, But Philip just goes for it. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't ask any questions. He's been prepared by God, and so he's ready to follow God's leading. There's a couple more directions he follows without any hesitation. After he strikes up a conversation with the Ethiopian, Philip's invited up into the chariot with him, and he gets up in there without any hesitation. Now remember, Philip has just seen his friend Stephen be killed for no other reason than the fact that he was a Christian. So it's pretty reasonable to assume a certain level of danger or risk. There's persecution everywhere, right? Philip just goes for it, no hesitation. Finally, after he shares the gospel with the Ethiopian, Look what happens next, verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. There's an interesting thread that runs through the book of Acts, kind of like what we might call a, a growing pain of the early church. We see several instances of people who come to faith, they accept the gospel, but then there's a delay before their baptism. A lot of times we see somebody else come in, baptize a person or a group of people later on after they've become a Christian for a while. But here, Philip doesn't hesitate. He's obviously mentioned it to the Ethiopian, maybe said, hey, when you get back home, you should be baptized, something like that. But, but this guy is so excited in his newfound faith, they just stop right on the road and they go for it. And Philip doesn't hesitate, doesn't hesitate to be used by God one more time in this guy's life, helping him really lock in and mark the decision he's made to follow Jesus. Because it's not as if this guy can go get plugged into a healthy church when he gets down there in Ethiopia. God's using this guy to start a movement there to transform a continent. One more important lesson from this passage, maybe the most important. Uh, We talked about how the story begins in the middle of things, right? In medias res. And one of the most fascinating and inspiring parts of the story to me is the fact that after all the preparation that this Ethiopian had experienced, it still took Philip to lead him to faith in Jesus. It still took a one-on-one relationship 
in order for all that preparation to pay off. Remember, this Ethiopian, he'd been at the temple. He'd, he'd gone to church, if you will, right? He'd, he'd heard the sermon. He'd sung all the songs, met a lot of nice folks. He'd done all that. And it's not until Philip is willing to sit down with him one-on-one that God is ready to complete his transformation, his preparation. That's when he becomes a Jesus follower, and that's how God prepares him to transform his own culture. Finally, I want us to notice what happens next. Look at the very end of the passage, verse 38. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, traveled about, preaching gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So once again, Philip is on the move. He's just following God's leading. In this case, he's, he's going to make more disciples. So there's a few things I want us to take away from this story. We're, we're plopped down right into the middle of things, seeing different ways that God has prepared these two characters, but now we need to ask ourselves, how has God prepared you and me? Each one of us has unique gifts, ways that God has prepared us. We're all in the middle of a story. How has God prepared you to be his witness? We each have unique life circumstances. We each have unique relationships God has given us. We all have influence in some way. How can we make use of those things? How can we be responsive to God in the same way that Philip is responsive? Where is God on the move in your life, and how can you join him? I want us to take a moment to reflect on these things, these these questions. How has God prepared you? What might God be doing in your life that's not just for you, but that's really for other people? How might God be using you to transform others? So in just a minute, we're going to take a moment of reflection. I want you to pray about that. Maybe you're like that Ethiopian, right? Maybe God's preparing you to have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe for you, you just need to take a moment and reflect on things that have been happening in your life, seeing maybe that God is at work, maybe for the first time realizing that. Maybe things you haven't noticed until today. How are you going to respond to what God's doing? So let's take a moment and bow our heads. Just take some time to reflect on these things, these examples, these two examples. Take a moment just to hear from God how he's leading and preparing you. I'll pray together in a moment. God, we praise you that you are at work even when we don't realize it, even when we don't see it. And we thank you that you've given us a measure of influence. Uh, You've given us the ability to uh, be your witnesses. And not just the ability, Lord, but you've given us the command. That's what we want to be doing. We want to be following the example of Philip. We want to be following the example of this Ethiopian, responding to what you're doing in our lives, Lord. We know that we're right in the middle of where you want us to be. And uh, even though we might be curious, we might have questions, we might not understand everything that you're doing, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to trust you, to follow you, to go where you lead, and to be responsive to all the things that you want us to do, Lord. Give us 
eyes to see people the way you see them. Give us ears to hear your spirit speaking to our hearts, Lord, and help us to be responsive to what you want. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.